Well, good morning, church. I invite you to open your Bibles on the first letter of Peter. First Peter. This is uh, the next on a series of sermons I've been preaching on First Peter, as I'll, I'm sure none of you will remember. Um, uh, the last time uh, we were uh, verses 13 to 16, and it's been quite a few months, so uh, you are forgiven. Even I myself had to remind myself where I left off. So today we are on First Peter chapter 1, and we'll be looking specifically on, uh, into verse 17. However, I'll read from um, 14 all the way to 19. So 1 Peter 1, verses 14 to 19. <clears throat> and um, if forgive me, I'll invite you to stand up as an act of reverence to the Word of God, if you don't mind. As obedient children... Do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance, but as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. And if you call him as father, who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile, knowing that you were ransomed with, from the futile ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. This is not only the word of God, but these are the very words of God. Please receive them as such. You can be seated. Thank you. Let me pray. Father Lord, we need you. I am dependent on you, Lord, to do what only your Holy Spirit can do. I need you to guard my lips. I need you to Remind myself of what to say and give me the right words. And we all need you to apply these truths to our hearts and to make them alive in our hearts. Practice and change hearts, Lord. I pray, Lord, that today we will leave this place not as we have come in, but we will leave this place changed, the ones who don't know you that may be converted by the power of your word, the power of your Holy Spirit, those who are downcast may be strengthened, those who are backsliding may be put back on track. Um, I pray, Lord, that you would make this sermon effective for your glory and yours alone. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. 
Um, let me start by a brief introduction of the previous verses. I mean, um, this is, I believe, the 10th sermon on chapter 1 of Peter, um, verse 17, where we will be concentrated today, is a strong verse. Um, setting the timer so I don't go over two hours. Um, um, it's a strong verse, but I haven't been the last few months trying to find, you know, pick a verse in the Bible that will be, you know, particularly hard on you or uh, Pastor Ryan didn't tip me off. Yeah, go hard on them or something. Use this verse. I simply am, am on verse 17 because it comes after 16 and that's where we left off last time. Also, let me remind yourselves uh, that in verses 1 to 12, we had no commandments. We had no demands per se uh, on ourselves. It was all about doctrines, all about uh, teachings, feeding our minds so that we uh, can instruct our hearts. So we looked at uh, election. We looked at Jesus' divine and human nature. We looked at the doctrine of new birth into a hope of eternal life. And this is a living hope. We looked at the perseverance of the saints, persevering by God's power. We looked at joy through trials. We looked at what genuine faith looks like, a genuine faith that loves, believes, and rejoices in the one they never seen, Jesus Christ. And then we looked at a grace envied by prophets and angels. And then we came, verses 13 to 16, to our first commandment. Set your minds, he says, set your minds. Uh, um, verse 13, preparing your minds. So gird up the loins of your minds is the literal translation. Be sober-minded. And he says, as obedient children, be holy for your father is holy. And now we come to the second time that... Um, the apostle, inspired by the Holy Spirit, uh, God himself, through the apostle, is demanding obedience from us, is instructing us. So that's verse 17. Let me read that again. Verse 17. And if you call on him as father, who judges impartially according to each one's deeds... Conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile. Now, the imagery there, the language of father or children, takes us back to verses 3 to 5, where God is said there to have caused us to be born again, to an inheritance in verse 4. It says... Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to His great mercy, He has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you. So, we were dead in our sins, and He made us alive. We were sons of perdition, sons of destruction, sons of the devil, and he turned us into sons of God. 
And this was entirely done by God himself without any help from us. This was done by his election, verse 1, verse 3. He has caused us to be born again. He caused us. We couldn't cause ourselves to be born again. Verse 5, we are being guarded by God's power. We cannot even guard ourselves. We cannot even keep our own faith without God doing it. And what part did we play in all this, in the regeneration, in our faith? None. We play no part whatsoever. Just like Lazarus was dead, was doing what dead people do, which is just being dead. Christ says, raise up, come out. Lazarus, come out. And that's, that was us, if you're truly born again. So we played no part in those. However, in verse 17, he says, now if you call on him as father. So if you claim that you have been born again, if you claim that God has done this miracle in your life, that you now belong to his family, then if you call on him as father, if you refer to God as being your father, if you claim to have been born again, behave in a manner appropriate to the children of God. Behave in a manner appropriate for a child of God. Which manner is this? With fear. With fear. And why should they fear? Because their father is not only a father, but is a judge. And not only a judge, but an impartial judge. And not only an impartial judge, but judge that will judge each and every one of us according to our deeds, our works. Now, I need to stop here and address a couple of things. One, what role do our deeds play in the day of judgment? Because he's saying, you judge us according to our deeds. And secondly, how come he's motivating fear in the lives of saved people? Doesn't love cast out fear? So let's look at each of those. What role does do our deeds play in the day of judgment? Please turn your Bibles to Romans 2. And I think that will make it clearer. Let's check if this is a teaching that we find anywhere else. Romans, the letter of Paul to the Romans, chapter 2, verses 5 to 8. But because of your hard and impenitent heart, you're storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. He will render to each one according to his works. There it is again. Seven. To those who by patience in well-doing seek to glor for glory and honor and immortality, he will give eternal life. Eight. But for those who are self-seeking and do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, there will be wrath 
and fury. So here, clearly, not only he is judging those who will be punished in um, eternal fire, hell, but he's also judging, according to works, those who will be given eternal life. It says there that based on what they are doing, well doing, seek for glory and honor immortality, he will give eternal life. Verse 6 says, he will render to each one according to his works. And we don't have the time to go through other Bible verses, but if you're taking note or if you're watching later, you can check. These are the Bible verses, Matthew 16, 27, Romans 14, 12, 1 Corinthians 3, 13, 2 Corinthians 5.10, 2 Timothy 4.14, Revelation 2.23, Revelation 20.12-13, and 22-14. And these are just in the New Testament. The Old Testament is full of the same teaching as well. So the Bible clearly teaches that we will be judged, all of us, according to our works, by our works. So how do we reconcile this teaching with Ephesians 2, for example? Ephesians 2, 8 to 10 says, For by grace you have been saved, through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand you should walk in them. So how do we reconcile these two? Well, as someone said, no dichotomy exists between judgment according to works and God's grace. Good works are evidence that God has truly begotten a person. Yes, we are saved by faith. Not based, like we saw, not based on anything that we could do, We're dead in our trespasses until God says, be alive. And he gives us a new heart and he makes us alive. And we have no part in that. It's not based on anything that we can do. It's not based on our works. However, those who are born again, they will be showing that naturally by their fruits, by their works. A true believer, no matter how new or immature, will have evidence of the new birth. Those who have been born again are far from being sinless. We daily stumble, we fail, we come short of God's perfect standard every minute of our lives. However, as stained with sin as our lives are, the true believer can be clearly identified as such because they are children of God they have a new nature and a new heart and a new mind. A lot more could be said on that, but that's not the focus of our uh, sermon today. Um, one other thing I would mention is that the works there, I believe, is not only deeds, actions, but works of faith as well and repentance. Now, so that out of the way, that's clear, that's clarified, I hope we are going to be judged based on our works because it's going to be evident that God has done a work in us. We have received a new heart. However, what's with the 
motivation to have fear in the lives of saved people. Let's read again, 17, First uh, Peter 7, uh, 1, 17. And if you call him as father who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourselves with fear. If conduct yourselves with fear, he's really saying live in fear. That's what he's saying. So how come? First John 4.18, I'm sure you can quote that by heart. Many of you, there is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear. For fear has to do with punishment. And whoever fears has not been perfected in love. So, first Peter commands fear. Right? It's a commandment. Fear. Conduct yourselves in fear. Remain in fear. However, first John says that the believer, the true believer, has no fear whatsoever. The word is clearly here used in two different ways. So clearly there are two ways of uh, interpreting the word translated as fear. And I will define this as bad, as bad fear and good fear. And I think if we go to 2 Corinthians 7, in Acts 9, put your thumb on 2 Corinthians 7, and then we turn later to Acts 9. And I think these two verses will make this clear for us, that uh, there are different types of fear we are referring to. So 2 Corinthians chapter 7, <clears throat> verses 5 to 6. For, this is Paul talking about his persecution. And afflictions. For even five, for even when we came into Macedonia, our bodies had no rest. But we were afflicted at every turn, fighting without and fear within. That's the word. But God, who comforts the downcast, comforted us by the coming of Titus. So there, in the original language, is the same lemma. It's just same word in Greek for fear. Uh, pay attention for the word comforted there. You see that? Fighting without and fear within, meaning they had no comfort. But then God comforted them by the presence of Titus. Now, if you go to Acts 9, please. Acts chapter 9. Keep 2 Corinthians open. That's when people with a mobile phone will struggle. Um, Acts 9.31. So the church throughout all Judea and Galilee and Samaria had peace and was being built up and woken in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit. It multiplied. So, walking in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit, the church multiplied. Do you see comfort in both those verses? And you see how in 2 Corinthians, they could not have fear and comfort at the same time. They had fear, that's why they had to be comforted. Now, in Acts, it's saying that because they had fear and at the same time, uh, were comforted, the church was multiplying. So clearly, the words 
the word fear is being used in two different ways here. So how do I define those words? How do I define bad fear and good fear? How does the Bible define? Bad fear is a dread. It's an angst. It's a one anguish, a deep anxiety that you have in fear of the judgment day. The fear of being condemned for your sins. As someone said, there is nothing more miserable than to be harassed by continual inquietude or restlessness or having a disturbed mind. The picture of someone that cannot put their minds to rest. They don't have peace of mind. They can't, they can't, they, their minds keep on disturbing themselves in terror, terrorizing themselves so that they cannot have rest. They cannot be under comfort because they are dreading judgment. They're dreading, it's a dreading fear that assails our minds, attacks our minds, torments us, impedes our peace of mind, makes us live in terror. And that is the bad fear. That's the fear that unbelievers have or should have if they're paying attention to what's coming. A dread, a terror, an anguish that takes away their peace because they know if they stand before the holy throne of God, they will be punished. How about the commandment to have fear then? How about this conduct that we need to conduct ourselves, live, literally keep on living under fear? What is this good fear? Good fear, many people define as respect and uh, reverence and awe. I think that's good, but it's not all of it. It's more, uh, much more than that. It relates to how we live our lives. It relates to us taking care how we live in a fearful way. See the parallel now. Go back to First uh, Peter, please. First Peter 1. You see the parallel in verses 14 and 15. It talks about the, the language of son or father there in 14. It says, as obedient children, right? And then talks about God being holy. So the, the parallels here are clear. 14 and 15 talks, says this. Because your father is holy, conduct yourself in a holy manner, right? See the examples of your father and behave like your father, he is holy, you be holy as well. Be in his image and likeness. Now in verse 13 it says, Because your father is an impartial judge, conduct yourself in a fearful manner. Because your father is also a judge and he will judge all our deeds, we should be careful how we live. Because he will judge all our deeds, we should fear living in a way that will bring his condemnation. Now, to illustrate that this is much more than just paying respect, uh, I'll illustrate with a king passing by, maybe a procession. And the king is passing by and you pay your respect. You maybe bow your head or maybe you wave or I don't know what you do when a king passes by. Um, you know, you put your hand into your heart, or maybe think of a minute of silence for the queen. You bow your head, you keep your silence, maybe you think of how 
good she was or you know something like that maybe wish her well or the family and after those few seconds are passed you carry about your own life that's not what we're talking about here when the bible talks about we fearing the lord the fear of the lord is the beginning of wisdom right it's talking about much more than this. It's no mere superficial bowing of our heads. It's a real sense of his power, of his knowledge, of his holiness and impartiality. It's a real sense that the one whom you call Father will one day look into the depths of your heart and expose all your deeds. And that should cause us to tread carefully before him. That should cause us to walk carefully on earth. In the light of the fact that he is not only a father, but he is also a judge, we should be living in fear of being fake, of pretending to be his children. of being a hypocrite. Because not only he's a father who is judge, but he's impartial. Not only will he judge us according to our deeds, but he will be using the same measure to judge you and I and everyone else. And there will be no slack. There will be no bribing. There will be no convincing in light of our deeds. I, um, I work for the film industry, and we have people we call the showrunners. And uh, sometimes we have quite a good relationship with these people. Um, you know, you crack jokes, you talk daily have meetings and all sorts of things, you grow a familiarity and a f almost a friendship, a acquaintance. And, you know, you're quite relaxed in their presence. At the beginning, you know, oh, this person is so powerful, or, you know, this person is so high up in the company and uh, maybe has a huge salary and you, you know, you tread carefully. But then after a while, you get familiar and you just, you know, crack jokes and talk about life. But imagine... I'm at work, and I have this familiarity with someone, and I forget who they are. And I start betraying their trust and start stealing from the company behind their backs. And I start pretending to be friendly and, you know, diligent with my work, but in fact, I am lazy, careless, and couldn't care less about the job, job I have. I should remind myself that though they are friendly and they're close and I'm familiar with them, I can be fired on the spot just if they do this. That they are powerful enough not only to fire me, but to sue me and ruin my life and make sure they'll never be employable in the same industry again. It's a similar way with God. 
Yes, he's our father. Yes, he's his friend of sinners. But don't ever forget that if you betray his trust, that if you're just pretending to be his children while you don't, couldn't care less about his commandments, he will judge you impartially. You will not be able to tell him in the judgment day, well, but I was around your people. Yeah, I was kind of fake. I was a hypocrite. I wasn't really born again. I was just, you know, wearing a mask. But I was around your people. I came to church. That will not cut it. So let me summarize this before we misinterpret what I'm saying. The point is verse 17 is not for the faithful believer, the one who is obedient, the one who is striving to be holy as their father is. The point is not for them to dread condemnation, but to live in fear of ever being found to be fake, ever being found to be pretending. We need a healthy amount of fear of being condemned if we fall away. This fear does not consume us with terror, but causes us to live in a careful manner, paying a close watch to ourselves, lest we be found wanting. This fear does not need to lessen our assurance, our confidence that we are saved, because we can live in fear of falling while still being fully convinced that we will not fall away. Because he has got us. We need to create, we need to let the Bible create categories in our minds which we are not used to. And here is one of them. That you can be confident that you are truly born again and you never fall away because Christ got your back. Because Christ is sustaining you by faith. While at the same time being very much afraid of ever falling away. These two things they are not mutually exclusive. Think of a driver who is a confident driver, but at the same time, he's afraid of crashing. He's afraid of an accident. He is confident he's going to reach the destination. However, he's still afraid that he could possibly crash the car. In fact, the very fear of crashing you make him reach the final destination, right? The very fear of crashing will make him, will cause the driver to drive carefully, thus reaching safely to the destination. In a similar way, our fear of judgment is one of the means God uses to keep us from being judged. The fear of judgment is one of the ways God uses to keep us from being judged. The warnings of God, if you lose the faith, if you backslide, if you become unrepentant, stubborn, disobedient, you will be judged. The very warning, keep us faithful. Assurance. So, so confident without fear becomes recklessness, craziness. Madness, carelessness, confident. You get a confident driver with no fear whatsoever of ever uh, crashing. 
you get mad driving, you get reckless driving. You get assurance without the fear of God, and you get license, you get impunity. Um, 1 Corinthians 9.27 says this, I discipline my body and keep it under control, lest after preaching to others, I myself should be disqualified. So here is the Apostle Paul saying that he, because of the fear of ever being disqualified, meaning going to hell, condemned, while preaching to others, saving others, he's taking a close watch to himself and keeping himself under control. Let me give you this illustration. We had a leak in our roof recently, and I called the roofer to come. Um, and um, I do a lot of DIY, but this is one of the things I, you know, I'm not sure I could do. So I am watching the guy going up my roof. I'm wondering how he's going to do it, because next time I don't need to pay someone to do it. <laughs> so he comes with a ladder, rests the ladder on the plastic gutter, uh, then he takes another huge ladder that has a catch, it's called a cat ladder. And he, with one ladder, goes up the other ladder that's resting on a plastic thing by himself, latches the other thing on the ridge on the top of the roof, this is a two-story house, gets up there, so he transfers from one ladder to the other ladder, gets up there, and then starts walking on the tiles. Tiles, they are broken, missing, um, Buttons, they are rotten. Uh, and he keeps doing this the whole day long by himself, carrying a bucket of cement. He's carrying a row of felt, and he's replacing the roof like that. And then it starts raining, and the guy is just wearing Converse All-Star trainers. Madness. I look at that, I was like, no way I'm ever going to do that. <laughs> right? Folks, I don't know if the guy is either unaware of the dangers around him or he's foolishly overconfident. Maybe he has no love for his life or maybe he's altogether mad. I don't know which one. But how about us? If we go about our lives with no fear of living, with no fear of ever being condemned, with no fear of ever falling away, backsliding, what do we get? We get license. We live without the fear of God when we don't realize the dangers around us, we don't realize how prone to fall we are, or we don't realize how certain the judgment is if we do fall. Second Peter 3.17 says, You therefore, beloved, Knowing this beforehand, take care that you are not carried away with the error of lawless people. Carried away with the error of lawless people and lose your own stability. Brothers and sisters, be careful lest you lose your stability. Carried away with the error. Hebrews 3.12 says, take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. Take care, lest you allow an evil, unbelieving heart to be turning yourself away, drifting away from the Lord. 
God himself, yes, will make sure that we don't fall by making sure we live in fear of falling, by making sure we live carefully before him. And then before we apply, lastly, it says, during the time of your exile, 17 again, if you call on him as father who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile. He's referring to our, he's bringing us back to memory that this is not a perfect, uh, permanent home. That we are citizens of heaven and we are destined to heaven. We are in a pilgrimage. We are in a transition. We are going towards our home, which is heaven. And because of that, we need to watch out. Because we are not there yet. Because we have not been made perfect yet. We are here in enemy territory and therefore we need to be careful. We need to be careful lest we are taken away or carried away because we are not home yet. The time is coming and is soon coming that we will live in eternity in perfection without the fear of ever sinning again, without the fear of ever falling again. But until then, keep a close watch to yourselves. Now, I'd like to make three applications, and please don't limit these to these applications. The Holy Spirit can apply that in many more ways. However, consider this. For those who don't call him as a father, to those who do call but are being careless, and then the matter of assurance. First, do you call on him as father? You see, God is the judge of everyone, but he's not the father of everyone. Not in the sense of the text. You don't want to face God in the judgment day as your judge only. You want to make sure he's also your father. Call on him today. Are you not a son, a child of God, a daughter of God? Then Make sure you go no other hour without being such. Cry unto him. Ask for mercy. Tell him, I need to become a child of God. I am tired and sick of being a child of perdition. I'm tired and sick of being betrayed by the devil and by all my own flesh. I'm tired and sick of loving sin who destroys my life. I want to become obedient child. I want to be holy as you are holy. But that is not something you can make yourself. You need an external help. You need a God. You need the Father to come and make you his father, his child. So come unto him today. Cry for mercy. Deposit your faith in Christ. Repent. And be saved. How about those of us who call on him as father. Who claim to be his children. But are living carelessly. 
Are we closing? Are we walking too close to the edge? Are we walking too close to sin? Keeping sin close to ourselves, thinking we'll never stumble, we'll never fall away. Are we exposing ourselves to temptation, thinking we're strong enough? Maybe what we watch. Our elder mentioned Twitter. Maybe preoccupied with things that are tempting you. Maybe in your relationship with a boyfriend or girlfriend, are you crossing boundaries or close to cross a boundary, thinking you're strong enough that you never fall? Friends, brothers and sisters, let's keep a close watch. Let's tread carefully. Are we delaying in dealing with sins? Are we keeping some cherished sins that we will deal with later? That, yes, I need to deal with those, but not just yet. Let me just go one more week. Let me just go one more year. Perhaps it's a small sin. Perhaps you think, well, a small seed of a sin will never take root. Yes, it can. You should be fearful that it will take root, will flourish, will suffocate your faith, and you will fall away. Let's, let's deal with sins swiftly. Are we neglecting the means by which we are kept? Let me give you an example, an illustration. There is this young man in the church. He, is, uh, he has put faith in Christ, has been baptized for a while, and is faithful. However, lately, hasn't been coming as often, you know, has been um, walking with some bad influences. But this guy is a young, restless, and reformed, you know. He's got a beard. He's got a Solideo Gloria tattoo. I'm not looking at any of you guys. He is a Calvinist. He's, a, you know, he's a reformed guy. And then... One day he comes through the doors of the church and this elderly lady looks at him. She can barely read, never had any formal theological training. And she tells this guy, my son, you be careful because you may fall away. You may lose your salvation. Oh, this guy comes and oh, no. I believe in the doctrine of perseverance of the saints. It's the pea and the tulip. You see, don't you understand that those whom God has, you never fall away. He will make sure they will be sustained in faith. Do you see what's wrong in there? He is theologically sound, but spiritually immature. He's missing a big part of it. Because the ones, yes, who you persevere by faith to the end are the ones God, yes, God will sustain to the end. However, the way He sustains them is by keeping a fear of the Lord, of keeping a close walk with the Lord. The way He makes them persevere to the end is by ordinary means. 
And if you neglect these ordinary means and end up losing your salvation, you never had it to start with. So yes, we are secure, but don't abuse God's grace. Don't abuse God's mercy and sovereignty and neglect your responsibility. Expose yourselves to godly people around you. Expose yourself to the word of God preached and read. Expose yourself to prayer and live in communion with the local church. Keep account of your sins. Confess them quickly and repent lest you fall away. And then lastly, do you fear God? Do you fear when you notice sin in your lives? Then you should rejoice. You should be encouraged because of the assurance of your salvation. Because, you know, I don't want you to take this message, go home and think, I need to either have my assurance or fear of the Lord. That's not the point. The very point, the very the very reason the very sorry the very fact that you fear the lord should assure you that you're saved the fake believer may even try to do good deeds but they are not concerned whether their hearts or motivations are sincere or honest the unbeliever may dread the punishment of god but they do not care whether god's glory and honor is being offended. So if you truly care, if you're living a life that is pleasing and honoring to God, if you truly care whether your actions reflect His character or not, then you have all the reason to be assured that you have been born of God and God is at work in you. So therefore, go out living in confident fear for the Lord is with you. Let us pray. Father, Lord, we come before you realizing that we cannot produce emotions on our hearts. We cannot produce the emotion of fear. We cannot make our hearts fear you. We need you to do a mighty work in our hearts and realign our hearts, Lord. Oh, Lord, may we never be presumptions on your grace. May we never take your grace and mercy for granted. May we never neglect the ordinary means of grace, prayer, the Bible, the sacraments, the communion of the saints. Oh, Lord, may we not take for granted your love. May we never be the ones who call on you as Father, yet behave as the devil. Oh, Lord, only you can do such things. So I pray, Lord, that you would do a mighty work in our hearts. For your name's sake, amen.